We started a couple weeks ago a series on perhaps my favorite book in the Bible, Ecclesiastes, strange book. It is a philosopher's paradise, this book. It is not so much about God. It is not so much about doctrine, theology. It is about life down here. In fact, he's going to use this phrase, under the sun, to talk about life down here. Life excluding, essentially, for the majority of this book, excluding thinking about God, excluding thinking about heaven and afterlife, things like that, and just thinking about what would it be like if there was no God? What would it be like um, if we just looked at the different things that people used apart from God to find meaning? And I'm calling this fuel. The fuels. Um, the relationships. The career. Um, the chemicals. Uh, the goals. The causes. Anything that people look to to fill their life, to fill their fuel tank apart from God. And so uh, Solomon calls this under the sun, thinking about meaning without thinking about God. He also uses this word, and, and if you paid close attention a couple weeks ago, you might remember the word hebel, which means meaningless. 38 times in the book, he's going to say things down here are hebel. They are futile. They are meaningless. They're pointless. And, and this is significant because in the entire rest of the Bible, it's going to use this word just a handful of times. But in the book of Ecclesiastes, meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. So life under the sun, meaningless. And so he began by testing um, some different things that people look to for meaning. Um, and, and we're going to talk about more of those today. There was an article published in a journal, the Journal of the American Academy of Music some time ago, and the article was published by a New York University sociologist, or musicologist rather, and he was talking about um, the kinds of music, songs, artists, genres of music that are used by the U.S. military and other law enforcement services around the world as a kind of low-grade torture, essentially to wear people out, to wear uh, suspects down. Do you know they did this? Well, they did. And the most popular song, apparently at Guantanamo Bay, is uh, Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA, right? There was a terror suspect from Spain who is now back home, was released, but spent two years in Guantanamo Bay. They said the majority of the time that he was there uh, in that prison, this was the song that was being played over and over again, which if you know anything about Bruce Springsteen, that's kind of an odd choice of songs, because actually this is a pretty anti-American song. At least it's anti-American policy. It's a protest song about what was going on in Vietnam. But anyway, that is, that is probably the number one song used by U.S. military interrogators. Uh, the second song, and, and pretty much any parent of a small child can, can identify with is perhaps amen this, the second song that is widely used is Barney the Dinosaur's I Love You. And I'd say for a couple of years there when my kids were little, it, it, it felt like torture every time that show was on. And that stupid, ridiculous song would come on at the end. Ah, oh, man. It was like an extended trip to, to the dentist. And then finally they say um, pretty, much, pretty much anything by Barry Manilow works as well. 
that law enforcement and military tend to use Mer Barry Manilow songs to wear people down. In fact, there is a city in New Zealand, Christchurch, where um, the city of Christchurch plays Barry Manilow music in the downtown area late at night until the early morning to keep punks and vagrants from, from putting vandalizing, from graffiti, from doing and selling drugs in, in the downtown area. So Barry Manilow, very effective. Apparently, uh, not only does he write the songs that make the world sing, but also cause teenagers' ears to bleed. So that's Barry Manilow. Well, Solomon says there are futility songs. Uh, the military calls this futility music that they use. Solomon says there is another kind of futility music, and it is found in the kinds of melodies that people are drawn to aside from God. Um, a couple of those, and he says that these melodies may be beautiful for a while, but over an extended period of time, they will wear you out. They will get tiresome. And so, so far in this book, he has tried out kind of two broad, uh, broad streams of melodies. He has tried out the melody of pleasure. And Solomon says, pleasure, great for a while, but then it becomes monotonous. Pleasure, no matter what it is, no matter what brings you joy right now, if you do it over and over and over and bigger and bigger and better, you do it enough times, it becomes boring. Then he tries out something on kind of maybe the other, um, the other extreme of the spectrum. So you've got pleasure over here. He tries out wisdom. He tries out wisdom, um, thoughtfulness, um, uh, philosophical inquiry. And he says, if you do enough of that, it will lead you to despair. It will lead you to a state of depression as you see all that is wrong with the world, as you contemplate how even the things that look good are only temporary and eventually result in this life-draining song of futility. So yeah, it's not the most optimistic book in the Bible, perhaps, as he studies these futility songs. We talked last week in chapter 2, uh, or rather he talked about money. Um, money. Some people pursue money as a means to buy other things that they want or that will, find, that will presumably increase their sense of happiness or joy in life. Um, some people just pursue money for the sake of money. Whichever way you go with it, Solomon was uniquely qualified to test that out. Um, we talked last week, according to the book of 1 Kings, he had nearly 700 talents of gold that were given to him as taxes each year. That is 23, you probably don't know what a talent is, so that is equivalent to 23 metric tons of gold. You put that in today's price of gold, that is about $1.3 billion of gold every year. So he was loaded. And so he tests this out. Let's buy everything from, from fine wine to servants to, to um, magnificent uh, edifices and construction projects. Let's try all that stuff out, and let's see if that brings meaning. And he says, no, it doesn't. It's a bill. It's meaningless after he tries it for an extended period of time. Um, he tries out uh, 
pleasure. He tries out drink. He tries out parties. I told you last week, um, if Solomon heard a song that he liked, he didn't download the song on iTunes. He bought the band, all right? If he liked One Direction, he would buy One Direction. He had the money to do that. So that's what Solomon does, and he tries that out, and he takes it to its extreme. He can, with $1.3 billion worth of gold each year, he takes it to extreme, and he finds that that turns up empty. That is a futility song. He tries these amazing building projects. He builds the temple, which was incredible, which was glorious. When people came from miles around from all sorts of different religions, it didn't matter just to see the architecture on this thing. Then he spent 13 years building his house. And you may think of trying out a building project as, as putting on a spare room. That's a, that, that's a joke to him. He wouldn't put on spare rooms. He had 700 wives, and he built for his wives palaces. So there's 700 palaces right there. Then he would build temples to their gods so that they may be from the other side of the world, but they'll feel at home. They'll have a temple to their god. They'll have their own palace. Um, so he was building vineyards and orchards and planting forests and, and dams and canals and all sorts of stuff to, to water all of the, the crops and, and the things that he was building. So, so went into building projects, using his creativity, using his architectural ingenuity, and and testing that out, and he found that after a time became tiresome, became boring, became monotonous. He tries out uh, women, tries out women. He had 700 wives. He had 300 concubines. And, and I mean, just to, just to kind of spell this out, guys, um, he could sleep with a different woman every night for about three years and never sleep with the same one. What I want you to see and what he wants you to see is he tried it all. Everything at his disposal, every kind of fuel that people look to to find something, anything, he tries it out and he tries it out full bore. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 10, he says, Anything, Ecclesiastes 2, verse 10, anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. Anything that I wanted, anything the ear heard that was delightful, anything I wanted, I, I bought for myself. Tried it all out. And he says that experiment just produces a sense of, of low-grade futility. Um, pursuing created things. Pursuing created things instead of pursuing the creator left him feeling empty. You see, we were not made... We were not made. We were not made to be satisfied by created things. We were made to enjoy those things, yes... But our soul will only be satisfied with the Creator. And so that's where your heart turns after this exercise in, in futility. We talked last week about living as a free radical. You see, when you realize your soul will not be satisfied with these lesser fuels, but only with the Creator, when you realize that, you are free. You are free to enjoy the good things that God has put in this world. You are free to enjoy, for example, relationships. You can enjoy a relationship with another person without being a slave in that relationship. 
A slave to their opinion, a slave to the applause of other people, because really only the opinion of one matters to you. And that's your Father God. And so there's incredible freedom when you understand created things can be enjoyed, yes, but there is no ultimate meaning in them. All right? Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 24 to 25. Solomon says, Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. So nothing nothing wrong there with, with enjoying them within the parameters he sets. They're from the hand of God. For who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him? But when I give my heart, when I give my affections to sensuality or to money, or to food, or to wine, um, or to even great building projects, when I give my heart to those things, there's a building sense of futility, even despair. So, now Solomon is going to turn his efforts onto another place that we look to for meaning. And I think this is one that certainly fits into 21st century North Dallas. This is, he's going to talk about career. He is going to talk about work. All right? So let's go there in chapter 2, and let's read verses 18 to 23, chapter 2. How about career? How about work? Verse 18. He says, I came to, to hate all my hard work here on earth, for I must leave to others everything. I've earned. And who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish? Yet they will control everything I've gained, everything I've gained by skill and hard work under the sun. How meaningless. Verse 20, so I gave up in despair, questioning the value of all my hard work in this world. Some people work wisely with knowledge and skill. Then they must leave the fruit of their efforts to someone who hasn't worked for it. This too is meaningless. It's a bell. It's a great tragedy. So what do people get in this life for all their hard work and anxiety? Their days are filled with pain and grief. Even at night... Their minds cannot rest. It is all meaningless. So the, there were things about work that caused Solomon's heart to despair. And I think I asked you this question the first week. Is there something about your work? Maybe you're a student. Maybe you're a doctor, a lawyer. Maybe you're a plumber or you're a school teacher. Is there something just, just hardwired into your work that drives you nuts. I think there are a lot of things about work. I mean, have you ever thought about, they say that one careless match can start a forest fire? Then why does it take me an entire box of matches to start my campfire? There's this, there's this sense of futility in so many of the, of the, of the projects we take on, so many uh, of the jobs that we take on. Solomon may have very well identified with, with the guy who said, you know, I thought I wanted a career 
ends up, I really just wanted the paycheck. Um, there was something that became futile, meaningless about his work. And, and it came from different places. He's like, you know, uh, let's try this on. He says, what if I'm really, really successful, right? What, what if everything I touch just prospers? And, 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 and so it's like this snowball rolling down a hill and it's getting bigger, but my fortune, my influence, my power, my empire, my business. And he certainly could testify that was true of his life. He says, what if I am incredibly successful in my work? Well, you remember what he says. He says, even then, everything I work for will end up in someone else's hands. And that seems meaningless to him. I did the work. Someone else is going to get the fruit of that work. And he says, and another thing. Who is to say that that other person is going to use that money the way I would want it used or going to invest that money in ways that I would think are wise? Then he says, but check this out. So, so work, not just putting in a day's work and the grind and the challenges and, and, and sometimes just having a really bad day at work. He says, for me, Solomon says, I get home and it's time to go to bed. It's time to turn off work and rest I can't even do that because of my work. And I bet a lot of y'all can identify with that. Even when it's time to be on vacation, you got your phone with you, checking in with the office. Even when it's time to completely turn off and just sleep for six hours or eight hours. You can't. The worry, the responsibility, the crisis, the personnel issue, it's bouncing around in there and you can't even rest. And Solomon says, I find in work this sense of futility. Now, let me be clear about this. The Bible does not teach that work is a bad thing. It is one of the good things that God has allowed us to do. But it is a good thing as long as it doesn't become a God thing. It is a good thing as long as it doesn't become your fuel, the number one thing in your life. And, and you know as well as I do, especially here in this part of the country, it easily becomes the number one thing in your life. Work, though, is essentially a good thing. I mean, Paul writes to the Colossian church in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. I like that word, whatever. You could be digging ditches. You could be studying for your final exam. You could be putting a filling in somebody's tooth, whatever. He says, do it. And it can be an act of worship to God. If God is at the center of your life, if God is number one, if he is the one who you worship, then any kind of task you perform, if you throw your heart into it, becomes a glory to God because he's the one who gave you the talents. He's the one who gave you the opportunity. He's the one who gave you the health to be able to do whatever it is you're doing. And in Hebrew culture, to this day, you know, Orthodox conservative Jews will honor the Shabbat and keep it holy. And, and that reminds them that God himself is a God who works because it all goes back to the beginning. And for six days, God is creating, God is building, God is working. For, for six days, he sweats and toils and creates the universe. And then on the seventh day, he rests. And so the Jews are reminded by God himself as the model of work that there is a rhythm to life. 
of six days of work and one day of rest. So the Bible affirms from God's own heart himself that work is a good thing, but as a source of ultimate meaning, eh, not so much. Not so much. Work makes a lousy God. It really does. A career is great. But putting the career at the center of who you are is, is, is a futility song. Now, y'all may remember if you're, if you're old enough or perhaps the song is just so big and, and, and so, was so famous that you remember it even if you're not so old. But you may remember the bird song from the 1960s that came from the book of Ecclesiastes, Turn, Turn, Turn. Well, this is Solomon's futility song. It's not Barney's I Love You. It's not anything by Barry Manilow. He wrote the original futility song. And so let's read this. You're, you're familiar with this. I, I will, let me just preface with this. The first eight verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Let me just preface with this. I think sometimes we get this song wrong. We, we love the cadence. We, we find something beautiful about this song. I don't believe he meant this song to be a sweet song. I believe that he originally meant this to fit in with the theme of the book, the book which is meaninglessness. Here we go. Verse 1. There's a time for everything, a season for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep, a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to fear or tear, sorry. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent time to speak, time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. We love the cadence. This is Hebrew poetry. It's, it sounds beautiful to us, but the message is the message we've seen up to this point. Solomon is saying, there is all of this activity. There is all of this apparent work going on. There is all of this busyness, but in the end, all of it cancels itself out. Every positive, there's a negative. Every construction project, there's a destruction project. Every practicing of the healing arts in a hospital or, or in an infirmary, there is a war that started where we're dropping bombs on people. And so under the sun, he says, it's all habel. It's all pointless. And while activity, virtually any activity, can produce a sense of drudgery, can produce a sense of even being torturous at times, and while even the pleasures of life, repeated often enough, can become boring, there is something more. Chapter 3, verse 11, Solomon says, and I'm so glad he puts this little nugget in here for us this morning, because it was beginning to get very depressing. 
He says in verse 11, He, God, has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. They cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. But he has set eternity. He has set in our hearts this sense that there is more than what we see under the sun more than what we see in the physical universe. And at times we may experience this low-grade sense of meaninglessness, of futility, even despair, but there is a seed in the heart of each person that there is more, that under the sun is not all there is to it, and there is something in us that is burned onto the hard drive of our heart that longs to experience this something more. And while we may exhaust um, all of the activities and the dreams we have in the physical world or even in the philosophical world or in scientific inquiry and pursuit, none of that will address the hole in the heart. None of that will address this feeling that there is something more. And I've always found it curious that anthropologists or historians look at cultures from thousands of years ago until today and they find that every culture worships something every culture thinks there must be something more some of it's very base some of it's very crass some of it looks very wrong to us but there is in every culture from ancient times till modern times a a need if you will to worship And even when a place like, say, the Soviet Union or North Korea says, no, 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 we're going to be an atheist country, they end up worshiping something else, the state or the supreme leader. There is this sense that there is more than what we see under the sun, and, and the Bible has an explanation for that. While there may be some atheists or some agnostics in every culture in the world, God says there is worship going on because he has set eternity in our hearts. Um, i finish up with a story about a friend of mine, Paulina Gomez. Uh, she is uh, in a Brazilian. I got to know her, and she's a friend of mine. Paulina Gomez was a, had had a very successful woman career-wise. Um, in fact, so successful was her career, so important was her career that at one point she had to make a, a choice between career and family. She ended up divorcing and, and throwing herself completely into her career. She had a PhD in philosophy. She taught philosophy at one of the universities in Rio. She had a PhD in legal studies and jurisprudence. She taught in a law school there in Rio. She published books. In fact, some of her books were used as textbooks in law schools around Brazil. She was, um, or is rather, a very very, very successful woman career-wise. But when she kind of found herself at the top of the heap, she had that feeling that that you read in the book of Ecclesiastes, that feeling like, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. This isn't satisfying. I'm still unhappy. And so I enjoyed so much getting to know her. I enjoyed so much getting to talk philosophy with her over a cup of coffee. I mean, we had some great conversations. Um, What I enjoyed most was seeing her come to know 
Jesus. I loved that. Here she is, nearly 60 years old. She has chased every rabbit that was remotely interesting to her in in her career path, and she's still unsatisfied. Then she meets a new philosopher, a philosopher king named Jesus. And more interesting to Paulina than his particular philosophies, his particular theories of life, was the person of Jesus himself. Turns out that the truth she had always been looking for, and we all look for truth, whether you are a scientist or a philosopher or whatever you are, our hearts search for truth. It turns out the truth she had always been looking for was a person. It was Jesus. And as Jesus shares about himself in John 14, verse 6, he affirms, I am the way and the truth, and the life. And when she found Jesus, it helped her order the other truths in her world that she had discovered, that she had found. It helped her make, make sense of those. It, it awakened, it, it, it made her, her, her life come alive in new ways. She had a, a daughter who she'd been estranged from for many years. All of a sudden, she reconnected with her daughter, and then eventually with her daughter's son, her grandson. Um, Her career became exciting once again as well. It was amazing to watch how her life came alive when she answered the call of eternity in her heart and she put Jesus first. I think that's what Solomon is doing here. I really do. Um, As he gets out his ancient bulldozer and bulldozes all of the false gods that people set up. As he tests out every kind of fuel that people put in their tank to find meaning. And as he systematically shows that they are not sufficient, they're not strong enough, they're not permanent enough. As he does that, as he eliminates all of the options here under the sun... He leaves us listening to that song, and it's not a futility song. The song that our heart has been playing all of the time says, there is something more. And then we find in Jesus the something more we've been looking for. Meaning for this life and meaning even beyond this life. The freedom and the purpose our hearts have always been looking for.